I want to invite you to please turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. And I was thinking, boy, it would be really nice to know if everybody actually does that, if everybody turns to Matthew chapter 7. But trust me, please turn to Matthew chapter 7. I encourage you or look on with somebody next to you. And we are continuing our study on the Sermon on the Mount. And we are really kind of bringing it to a uh, close this both tonight and tomorrow or next week. So we are in Matthew chapter 7. I want to thank uh, Jenny for leading worship this evening again. Last week I asked everybody, if you haven't met Jenny yet, please introduce yourself. Not everybody did, so she had to stay another week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Liz was... Uh, taken out with a sickness this week, and so I'm very thankful that Jenny was able to fill in again for Liz. Um, as we've continued to go through the Sermon on the Mount, and this is a complete sermon, Matthew chapter 5 through 7, the thing that we keep going back to over and over again is Jesus is after your heart. As Jesus was teaching to the people on the side of the mountain, on the side of a hill somewhere in Galilee, Jesus is, is chasing after their hearts. He knows that they have been able to go through the rhythm of what it was to follow God as far as in practice. They knew where to be at what time and when to go to the temple at what time of year and what to wear and what to say and when not to do stuff on Sabbath. And they knew it all. They knew the traditions. They knew what to do, when to do it, how to do it. And Jesus is saying, no, no, I'm coming after your heart. I want your heart. So Jesus is continually sharing through this whole Sermon on the Mount, that he is after his listeners' hearts, both then and now, and everywhere in between. And as we've gone through the Sermon on the Mount, we've looked at how Jesus has challenged their attitudes. He's challenged their attitudes towards God. He's challenged their attitude towards how they treat others. He's challenged their attitude toward the law. He's challenged their attitude in how they spend time with God. He's challenged their attitude in how they give. He's challenged their attitude of how they approach fear and anxiety. He's challenged their approach of how they live. And he's challenged our attitudes of how we live. And we started out in the Sermon on the Mount. Actually, David Barton started out on accident. I got sick that week. And he was in John 15, and he talked about what it is to abide in Christ. In John 15, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. And if you are firmly grafted into the vine, you will bear fruit, fruit that lasts for eternity. But when we are not firmly grafted into the vine, we are cut off and pruned out. And it was a challenge to us of maybe there's things in our life that need to be pruned out. Things that we think, well, it is a good-looking branch, and it needs to be pruned out so that we can bear fruit properly. That we can bear fruit that lasts for eternity. And we've talked a lot of this idea through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and a couple weeks ago when we were talking about true and false prophets, and he's saying, you will know them by their fruit. What it is to inspect fruit. And he's... And, 
I came across this quote this last week when we're looking at challenging our attitudes, when we are looking at uh, uh, challenging our hearts, when we're talking and we've mentioned Psalm 1 on what it is to be a tree planted by the living water, that it is that living water that feeds the root system, that causes the tree. And it says that that tree that is firmly planted, that has a good root system, that is soaking up the living water of Jesus Christ regularly, that always produces fruit in season. So I heard this quote, and I have no idea where it originated, but it says, you are not a good tree because you bear good fruit. You bear good fruit because you are a healthy tree. Meaning that a tree isn't dependent on the fruit. The fruit is dependent on the health of the tree. Let's say you have a garden, and you have an apple tree, and I come over and visit, and you're like, come here, you got to see this. This is a fantastic apple tree. So we go out, and you go over to an apple tree, and you just go to like one branch, and then at the end of that one branch, you get to just this one little twig, and you're like, I water this little twig every day. Uh, Hasn't produced an apple yet, but... You know, I do water this part right here, and I really have high hopes um, for it. And I'm like, you planted your apple tree on asphalt, and it's not looking good. And you've done everything wrong. It can't get any sun. It can't do this. It can't do this. And you're like, no, 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 but look, at I watered this part, and soon fruit's going to show up. It sounds absolutely ridiculous, but a lot of times that's what we do in our spiritual life. We focus so much on trying to get fruit just to show up that we pay no attention to how the tree's planted. We pay no attention to the health of the tree. It doesn't have incoming water, the holy water that will last for eternity as Jesus calls himself. It has none of these things, but we can pay so much close attention to a little twig and put all our faith and hopefully an apple shows up. You are not a good tree because you bear good fruit. You bear good fruit because you are a healthy tree. A healthy that is grafted into that vine that is Jesus Christ. That is how we bear fruit that lasts for eternity. So I want you to start with me in chapter 7, and I will be stopping as we go through this passage. But join with me, chapter 7, starting in verse 24. Jesus teaches, and he says, Therefore, and we're going to stop there, Whenever we see a therefore, it means you need to stop and find out what it is there for. So do this with me if you would. Turn back to chapter 5 and stand up with me if you are able to. When he says therefore, he's saying all of these words that I have said. In fact, that's the next part after therefore. All of these words that I have said, and this is one message that Jesus is teaching. And so what are these words that he has said? It's the sermon. So we're going to read through, starting in chapter 5, verse 1. Read with me. I told you you'd want to turn there. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you 
persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and then remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, first go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You've heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants you to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. 
You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends, rains, uh, sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received the reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do. For they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will de be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear, is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon, in all his splendor, was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today, and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith?" 
So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me first take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be open. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone, or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you, then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. You may be seated. That was the greatest message preached by the shepherd, the great shepherd. This is what Jesus would teach 
Quite often it is believed. This was Jesus' manual for discipleship. This was Jesus' manual for church planting, if you will. This is what the early church used. They would go back to this and use it over and over again. And this is what they would use as this this portion of Jesus' teaching. Tonight I want to talk about foundations. Everyone has a foundation. But there are really only two ways to build a foundation. There's a good way, and there's a bad way. There's no in-between. If you were to look at a house, and you walk in, and I've been doing this recently, uh, and you walk in, and um, you start to jump around, and you realize the whole house is shaking, and you look at the realtor, and you're like, "Uh, that probably isn't good, right? And he's like, no, no, it's a shaky foundation, but it's good. Find a new realtor. Jose Ray is working with the children in the bank. There's only a good foundation and there is a bad foundation. And when we look at foundations, please understand that there is no middle ground. So if you are taking notes this evening, and I really, really hope you are, um, because there are going to be a lot of discussion questions at the end for you in your community groups, for you wherever you have discussions like this. And I want to look at point number one. God is the rock. God is the rock. Rock is mentioned almost 30 times in Psalms as the name for God, and there are many other times that it is mentioned in other forms. Uh, And so I love this, this view of God being the rock, that it is safety, that it is uh, where you go. It is that firm foundation that he talks about here in Matthew chapter 7, and I obviously really like the name rock. That's my oldest son's name. But when we look at God as the rock, and I, I wanted to go through all 30 of the Psalms, but I figured if we were reading the entire Sermon on the Mount, we'd go a little late. But I want to turn, you to turn to Psalm 40. Psalm 40, starting in verse 1. And David is writing this, and we don't actually know for sure what is going on with David at the time that he writes this, but this is, to me, one of the most relatable things that I think of very often as David writes this. He says, I waited patiently for the Lord He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, who does not look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. Many, Lord my God, are the wonders you have done. The things you plan for us, none can compare with you. Were I to speak and tell of your deeds, they would be too many to declare. So often we find ourselves bogged down in the muck and mire and mud of life. Everything seems to wrap around us. It is like quicksand. We are sinking and we just call out. And I love, because as David writes this, he says, I called out and I waited patiently. He didn't give us a timeline. He didn't give a demand to God of right now, I don't want to endure this anymore. And God, in his perfect timing, pulled him out. He pulled him out and he set his feet on the rock. It's nothing that we can do. It's God who picks us up and puts us on the rock. And he puts us there and we find this firm foundation. So number one, God is the rock. Number two... I want to go over the important role 
of a foundation. The important role of a foundation. Uh, Tab and I had owned a house in Virginia for about five years before we moved down here. And it's actually very similar to our house now. But people would come over to our house and we would show them our house. And this happened actually quite regularly. And they would look in the backyard. And I was very proud of our big backyard. And they would see our shed. And our shed was built terribly. And they would look out and they built it on a hill, a steep hill. And the back of the shed was on the ground. But then it came out and they just kind of put wood and it had to be about two and a half feet off the ground. And then underneath it, there was nothing from the front to the back. But then they put the door on the side of it where there was this awkward hill, so you couldn't really build a ramp to it either. But over time, as I worked with archaeologists trying to figure this out, they, at some point it looks like the shed started to sink in the front because they didn't put any blocks underneath the wood, so it started to sink. So at some point they kind of like jacked it up again and then built some other two-by-fours and they ran like a cross brace across it. And then that started to sink too, or started to go. So then they ran, um, like, I just don't understand it. And other builders I talked to, like, I don't know what happened, why they did what they did to this thing. But they just kept looked at just tacking on more and more wood. There was actually some steel in one place, and I just don't know. And what would happen is people would come over to our house, and they'd see our house, and they'd look out back, and they'd be like, oh. And then they'd always look at me and go, did you build that? It's nice. I was like, no, I, didn't. I don't know why you think I built that. It was horrible. And so what we did is, as I was trying to figure out, and I talked to other friends of mine, like, how do I fix this? Uh, my friend, Toby, a phenomenal carpenter, he goes, what I'm going to do is, I'm going to brace it up and cover it up with plywood so you can't see it. I was like, great, because i got to sell this thing. So that's what we did. We get it so it worked, and it held, and then we covered it up with plywood. But oftentimes, that is exactly what we do in our spiritual lives. We're not built on a proper foundation. We find ourselves sinking, and we just start tacking stuff to it. Well, maybe I just need to be involved in this, or maybe I just need to do that, or maybe if I just add this other. And it started with two-by-fours, and then at some point, they added four-by-fours, and then it was six-by-sixes, and then it was just railroad ties that were crossed all over the front of it. And they just kept tacking, like throwing stuff at the problem without addressing the main issue. And then I came along and thought, I'm just going to cover it up so I can sell this thing. And then that's what we do. We tack up stuff and we add stuff and we do more stuff and eventually we're just trying to sell ourselves as spiritual people and so we're just going to cover up the mess. But the foundation has never been addressed. And at some point, we just take a bulldozer to all of the junk that we've added to our lives, hoping that at some point that little apple shows up even though the foundation, the root system is non-existent. And it just doesn't happen. This summer, and I mentioned it before, but uh, this summer we're going to start going through a series on the gospel. And through June, we're just going to be talking about how is the gospel transforming our lives at its core, at our hearts. And then the last part of the summer, we're going to be talking about how is the gospel transforming our lives, starting to transform the people and the places around us where we live, learn, work, and play. But it's got to be Christ doing the work in our hearts first. It's got to be the gospel transforming us every day. And we have to keep coming back to that. 
Please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2 as we talk about this foundation. You've heard me mention many times before, Ephesians chapter 2 is such a wonderful synopsis of the gospel. What the gospel is to us and those first 10 verses as you go through that are telling us that it is nothing that we've done. It is everything that God has done through Jesus and that he is reconciling us to himself. And then the second half or almost the entire second half, he's talking about Jews and Gentiles being reconciled as one family. And we see this reconciliation between us and God causes reconciliation between the people here on earth that once we were enemies with, but now we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And he brings chapter 2 to a close, starting in verse 19. Paul writes, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. The foundation, that cornerstone. And at this time when they would build, the cornerstone was such... It was the most important piece of any structure. It was that piece that everything was guided off of. They didn't have laser levels and lines. And so the cornerstone had to be completely perfect. Everything was going to be held true. Everything was going to be correct as long as it matched up with that cornerstone. And if there was something, a problem as you were building, it was because you took your eyes off the chief cornerstone. It was no longer holding you true. You were just freestyling, trying to do it on your own, and you got off. So that Jesus being the chief cornerstone, Jesus is the rock, the foundation. Jesus is that chief cornerstone. It keeps everything else straight and true. But if we have built a foundation on anything else in life, if we have gotten away from Jesus, the chief cornerstone, at any point in life, it will show. How do we know it will show? Because Jesus told us it will. How? When the storms of life show up. That second part of the passage when he says, the rains came down and the floods came up. That's not actually what it says there. but (laughs) The rains came down and the floods came up and the winds beat against that house. The house on the rock stood firm. The house built on the sand went, if you know the song. In life... Point number three, the storms of life. In life, we will encounter storms. We will encounter the rain. We will encounter floods. We will encounter strong winds. The last couple weeks, I've been using the illustration of if I'm holding a cup of coffee and Jose comes up, and I'm using Jose because we got three of them. Jose comes up and he bumps me and coffee spills all out of my coffee mug. What caused that to happen? I said, well, Jose... He's very rude. No, coffee spilled out of my coffee mug because I put coffee in it. If I had filled it with water, water would have spilled out. What we fill our lives up with spills out when it gets bumped. What our foundation is built on shows up when storms come. Life has bumps and storms. You will encounter them. If you have not encountered them, that's amazing. Trust me, 
it will. Now, as we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, we keep saying that uh, it is believed that the book of James was written as a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, that James writes the book to continue to explain this message that Jesus more than likely taught regularly uh, called the Sermon on the Mount or another recording of it in Luke that's similar to it. And what does James say in chapter 1? He starts off in verse 2, chapter 1, saying, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. When you face those storms, when you face those bumps, when you face the rain and the floods and the winds, consider it all joy. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. It sounds terrible. Have we considered the things that we're to view as joyful? It's not just the good, it's the storms, it's the bumps. So how do we consider it all joy or why do we consider it all joy? Well, number one, this will show you what your foundation is truly built on. That's not always joyful when you find out. When those bumps and those storms and all those things happen, the way that we respond is a demonstration of what our foundation is. The things that we blame, the things that we say, well, if Jose hadn't bumped my arm, the coffee wouldn't have spilled. That shows us what our hope is truly in. The things that we say, well, if only this had happened, that reveals what our hope is in. If only I had more money, then your hope is in money. If only my marital status was different than what it currently is, your hope is in a status. If only my kids would listen to me, you're putting your hope in your kids listening to you. Not a great, not a great solution. Whatever it is that we blame, whatever it is that we say, if only this, understand you have put your hope, you have built your foundation on sand. Our ability to grow in trials and temptations teaches us endurance. When those storms hit, the way that we respond to them shows us what our foundation is. It shows us if we've gotten offline of the cornerstone. It shows us the things that need to continually change in our hearts and lives. That's how we have joy. Because we can say, wow, God really loves me and he wants me to continue to grow. This is fantastic. And sometimes when we find ourselves going through the same thing over and over and over again, it's because we are just tacking on extra pieces of wood. We are tacking on extra things. We are trying to cover it up, and God is trying to teach us. And we have to keep going through it over and over and over again because he's giving us the opportunity to rely on him. I don't know if you've ever been in any kind of a storm. I have not. Wind has a very hard time moving me. But when we are in situations and in storms and you find yourself, what are you told to do if you're outside? You get low. You hold on to something that isn't going to move like a rock. And when we're in very tough times, you find yourself clinging closer and closer to the rock as the wind is trying to blow you away. 
that's that reliance that we are talked about. As we have gone through, as reading from chapter 5 through, he keeps going hunger and thirst for righteousness. Rely on me. Stop relying on yourselves. Stop relying on traditions. Stop relying on attendance records. Stop relying on all of the things and rely solely on me. Put your foundation on the rock. Align yourself with Christ, the chief cornerstone. Align yourself with the word of God. It starts in the heart, as we've been saying over and over and over again. Sometimes we need to get a bulldozer involved. Sometimes we need to take out all of the other stuff that we've tried to fix a problem and we haven't gone to the core. So how do we do this? Point number four, the application Hearing isn't enough. Hearing isn't enough. Look at verse 24. It says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, you are all set. Doesn't say that. I was seeing who was listening. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. Or read, anyone who hears these words of mine and actually does something about it. Let's go back to James. James chapter 1, verse 22. Do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. And I've heard this, especially in youth groups, taught so many ways. I've heard it say, it's like looking in the mirror before you go out on a date and you have a big booger in your nose. Or it's like looking in the mirror and you have a giant zit on your forehead. Or you have something in your teeth. And, and really, it's all of those. When we look at the word of God, it should be pointing out blemish after blemish after blemish because we are imperfect people that rely on a holy God who gave his perfect son and his blood that covers us and we can rest in his righteousness, not our own. And we seek after that righteousness that is only done through the Holy Spirit guiding us and teaching us as we try to live more like Christ. Amen? And so we look at the mirror, and it says, not hearers only, but doers put into practice. When somebody starts practice, they're usually really bad. Any coaches who've ever coached t-ball know they don't start off great. The majority of the team not looking at college scholarships. It takes practice and and over and over and over and over and over again. And we do this. We do this at our jobs. If we want to get better at our jobs, we, we work at them. If we want to get better at anything we do. But when somehow, when it comes to our spiritual life, we're like, well, that's too hard. Eventually, I'll just wake up and be phenomenal. It's not how it works. Put into practice. Start somewhere. Hearing isn't enough. We must be doers. We must practice. We must allow the Holy Spirit to do his work in our lives, transforming us into Christ's image. So 
I have three questions for you as you leave here this evening. Number one, for you to discuss in your community groups, for you to discuss, number one, what is your actual plan for becoming a disciple who obeys? What is your actual plan for becoming a disciple who obeys? Do you have a plan? Is it written out? I'm sure you've heard the saying, those who plan to fail, fail to plan. No, those who fail to plan, plan to fail. Didn't plan that out. <laughs> it's not written down. What is your actual plan? Who have you discussed it with? Have you talked to your spouse, roommate, community group, whatever it is? This is my plan moving forward. Last week we said, what is your summer reading schedule of the Bible. We must start in your time alone with God, your time alone in God's word. Number two, what are you going to put into practice this week? What is one thing? We've talked about this for the Sermon on the Mount a long time. What is one thing this week you're going to put into practice? I'm going to read the Bible five times this week for X amount of time. Like I said before, a couple weeks ago, these things are amazing. They have calendars, they have schedules, they have reminders, they have alarms. Is it in your phone? Is there an alarm set? Is it set aside? Is it blocked out? What are you going to put into practice this week? And then number three, is there someone that God has laid on your heart? Is there someone that God has laid on your heart? In the back, we have our pi squared cards. It's just the name for you to keep. You write five names on the back or however many people you're going to pray for every day. I keep mine normally in the dashboard of my car, but I've been moving cars around a lot lately. So it's now in my Bible, but it's uh, just a reminder to pray for these five people. Pray, invest, invite. Called our pi squared card. Who am I praying for every day that they would come to know the Lord? How am I investing into their lives in some way? Am I spending time with them? Am I reaching out to them? Am I, and I am, am I inviting them? Number one, am I inviting them to know Jesus? Am I inviting them in something, in a way to know Jesus? Am I inviting them out to coffee? Am I inviting them into my home? Am I inviting them to community group? Am I inviting them to church? How am I doing this? We have them right in the back. How are we going to do this every day? Is there someone on that list that this week you're going to reach out to them? A practice that I used to do before my commute to work was so short was I would just pray, God, put somebody on my heart just to text as I was driving into work. Just put somebody on my heart that you want me to text, not while I'm driving. But when I stop, I'm going to text them. And it was amazing. And honestly, I just don't do it enough anymore. And I would drive and I'd just pray. And then when I'd get there, I'd shoot a text. And it, the response is, crazy. I don't have social media, so I don't know what's going on in people's lives, and it's glorious. Can't recommend it enough. And I would say, hey, I'm just praying for you. And he goes, why? I don't know. God put you on my heart. He goes, then it happened over and over. Rob, my boss, who's an atheist, mom just died out of nowhere. And they're asking me all sorts of questions. Please pray for me that I know what to say. Over and over and over again, have you taken time just to listen to the Holy, Holy Spirit is guiding you to reach out to you? Is there someone that God has laid on your heart? Satan loves to keep us busy. Satan loves to keep us distracted. He's figured out so many ways to do it. Have you taken time to say, God, lay somebody on my heart you want me to reach out to? 
It may not be anything but, oh, thanks. I get those too. You don't know how God's going to use you, but who are you? Who has he laid on your heart? So number one, what is your plan for becoming a disciple who obeys? Number two, what are you going to put into practice this week? And number three, is there someone that God has laid on your heart? I also want to point out, normally we take this bookshelf in the back, that's Oakbrook Community Churches, and we wheel it over here into the closet. And we've met here twice, and after every service, when we wheel it back out after almost everybody's gone, or during the week when people are here, people have been buying books. I recommend almost every book on that shelf all the time, and you can, there's a little box to put money in it. I'm going to stand back there. If you're saying, Rob, I need a book, you can help out Oakbrook Community Church. <laughs> And there are just a plethora of great books right at cost. They're not making any money off of it. I would love to have that conversation with you. How do I continue to grow? Uh, what are ways that we can put this into practice? Um, two very practical ways as well. This summer, we do equip classes. We try to do, we used to do them every summer. And then there's this little thing that happened the last couple of years. We weren't able to do them. If you're curious, I'll tell you later. Um, but then... We're bringing them back, and we're just doing two this summer. The first one is Financial Peace University, uh, especially during this crazy last two years that I'll tell you about later. People have been wondering about their finances and concerned. Hey, I don't want to go through that again. Jose Ray does a phenomenal job, Jose and Carly, and they'll be teaching that starting very soon. Courtney, do you know when that's? Oh, it's Thursday. So you need to talk to Jose tonight. Uh, Jose is working with the elementary students right now, um, but please see Jose tonight or reach out to him. If you need his number, let me know. And then the second half of the summer, and we split it up by 4th of July because if you've never been here before, we don't do service 4th of July weekend. So July 2nd, there is no service. Then it's the second half of the summer. And we will be going through a series our pastor in Rochester did. He just redid it at his church in um, Oregon, or I'm sorry, Washington State, and it is um, Rules of Engagement. Um, it's great for marriages, but if you're not married, it's still wonderful. It's how do we deal with communication, and we'll probably be doing it here, and we'll be giving you more information on that since it's the second half. But these are just ways that we want to help equip you, that we want to help come alongside of you as you come alongside of us. We are in this together. We love you. We want to see how do we grow together. How do we put this into practice together? We need each other. We need each other to continue to grow as the Lord works in our lives together. Let's close in prayer. Actually, before we pray right where you are, I want to ask you, again, just to take a minute or two right where you are. And maybe this is the time that you just ask God, God, what is going on in my heart? What are the things that need to be pruned out? What are the things that I need to put into practice? Or maybe it's a time where you're saying, God, who are the people that I should be reaching out to even tonight and just checking in on them? Or maybe you're here and you've never actually started that relationship with Jesus. It sounds good in theory. It looks nice. But it's not for you. Maybe in this minute or two, in this silence, maybe this is the time where you call out to God. Recognizing what it is that he is the forgiver of your sins and can be the leader of your life. That what Jesus went through on the cross was for you, that he took the beating that we deserved because of our sin. Then he took our sin on his shoulders and was 
crucified, and he took our sins to the grave, leaving them there, and rose again, defeating sin and death, so that when we call out to him, he becomes the forgiver of our sins and leader of our life. When we believe in our heart that he is who he says he is, we can begin that relationship with him. So let's just take a minute right now where you are and pray to him.